Would you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be there in just a few minutes. Take a while to get there, but you might be ready there, and then we'll work our way backwards through some portions of the New Testament. This morning, as we close in on the last couple of topics in our summer series, Biblical Answers to Difficult Questions, I'd like to address a topic that's really much more than a theological discussion. It's a topic that has, in many ways, been a chief divider in the body of Christ, and that is the question of speaking in tongues. It's not my favorite subject to do, but it's one that's necessary for some, and I would dare say probably most of you, this issue has barely touched you at all. But for others, this has been interwoven into the very way that you conceptualize Christianity, at least in part. The charismatic movement as a whole, we would evaluate uh, with Scripture as being a primarily spiritually dangerous movement over the past century and a couple of decades as well. But there are many, many truly saved believers who have been a victim of terrible deception through the charismatic church, and our, our hearts go out to them, and many of you here were in that category, maybe even recently. And so the question this morning, the way I'm phrasing it, already gives away our position at Grace Bible Church. The question is, why don't we speak in tongues anymore? Why is that not the case? And I want to be very clear up front that this is not a salvation issue. But it does become a salvation issue to the extent that emphasis on speaking in tongues begins to replace an emphasis on the gospel. And so that's important for us to to be clear about that. And so I've, I've prayed through this and thought about it and spent quite a number of weeks in study here. My intention is to do three things. I want to be truthful, I want to be objective, and I want to be loving Because I know that for a few of you hearing this, what I'm challenging is what for you may be the single most meaningful and important spiritual experience in your life. Now, I want you to know that I get that. We understand that. But what I'd like to gently ask you to consider is that truth must always judge experience. Experience can never be the judge of truth because experience can be counterfeited. It can be deceptive. Now, this is a complex issue, and I'll explain why as we go. So basically, having one message to do this, I'm kind of going to be jumping from one tip of an iceberg to another. But hopefully we'll get enough of the idea here to be convincing. One of the reasons this is a complex issue is because there isn't a simple or singular Bible verse that simply says, quote, After the apostles have died, the gift of tongues and all the other miraculous spiritual sign gifts such as miracles and prophecy and healing, will no longer be in effect. There is not a Bible verse that says that. And someone might say, aha, you just proved our point. Let me ask you this. Why would there be a New Testament verse emphasizing the future removal of these gifts? Because when the New Testament was written, they were still being used. They were still active. And so what we have to do is follow some logical arguments from Scripture. But I will say this. Historically, it can be shown very, very clearly that the generation after the death of the apostles, among that generation of church fathers and leaders, there was absolute agreement that the gift of tongues had ceased. So the men who immediately followed the apostles believed that it was gone. 
Now, with the exception of occasional splinter movements in church history, uh, some of which were deemed heretical by church councils of ages past, it's only at the beginning of the 20th century that the resurgence of the so-called sign gifts and speaking in tongues have uh, come back. I have a lot to cover this morning, so hopefully some of it will be useful to you. We're going to jump from kind of tip of iceberg to tip of iceberg. I want to divide our time this morning into four sections, and we'll simply call them the foundations, the timing, the purposes, and the dangers. The foundations, the timing, the purposes, and the dangers. Now, we'll spend most of our time on the timing, but first we need to look at the foundations. And to do that, I thought about some different ways. What I just want to do is give you some definitions and some backgrounds that I think might be helpful to you. The first definition is the word continuationism. Sorry to give you a big long one to start with, but I can't make a shorter version. Continuationism is the belief that the miraculous sign gifts, such as tongues, healing, prophecy, miracles, gifts of knowledge, and so forth, that these are still in operation today. Now, there's two main variations. There's, there's a lot more, but there's two main variations of the continuationist position. The first one is, is that those who believe that the sign gifts have always been in operation since the first century, that they've never stopped. That's the minority view. Now, ironically, the majority of continuationists don't actually believe in continuationism. I guess we could call it restart-upism or something like that. But those are the ones who believe that the sign gifts restarted in the 20th century, that the church is experiencing what they take as the latter reign of Joel 2.23, which is interpreted as the raining down of the gifts of the Spirit, so to speak. That's continuationism. Cessationism is the belief that the miraculous sign gifts have ceased after the age of the, of the apostles. There are more flavors of cessationists. There's four of them. There are those that, that espouse what is called the open but cautious movement. The open but cautious movement says that miraculous gifts have ceased wherever the gospel has been established, but the gifts still occur in unreached parts of the world to aid evangelism. It sounds nice, but it has zero support in scripture and is based solely on anecdotal evidence. The second flavor we would call classical cessationism or classical cessationists that the sign gifts have ceased since the apostolic age and the completion of the biblical canon, and that while God does and, uh, and can and, and does still do miracles today in a general sense, the miraculous gifts are no longer in operation. In other words, we believe that God heals, we just don't believe in healers. And then very quickly, there are those we could call total cessationists, that both miraculous gifts and miracles of any kind uh, have ceased. We wouldn't hold to that. And others have had a fourth group, maybe called complete cessationists, that all spiritual gifts, including the miraculous gifts, are not in operation today, but that God uses people by his good pleasure, by the power of the Spirit. We're not going to address the last two. We would come under the classical cessationist category. So to be very clear, classical cessationism doesn't deny the supernatural, doesn't deny the possibility of miracles. We can't. Because Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. It doesn't say he does what our theological system dictates that he do. So let's define the gift of tongues. I'm going to kind of give away my position here a little bit because we have to divide the gift of tongues into two different definitions. We'll call the first one the biblical definition and the second one the continuationist definition. So I kind of gave it away there, but I don't know how else to say it. 
the biblical definition. The biblical definition is that the gift of tongues was a miraculous spiritual gift in which the speaker is able to communicate to others spiritual truths in a foreign human language that he didn't previously learn, an unlearned language. The tongue speaking of the apostles in Acts 2 lists 15 different languages that they were speaking. The Greek word for tongues, which is almost exclusively used in the New Testament to speak of this gift, it simply means human language. There's no other meaning for it. It doesn't really ever mean anything else. The gift of tongues operated like the gift of prophecy. The miraculous gift of prophecy occurred in organized fashion in the early church before the completion of the New Testament, and it was a way that God communicated with his people. So to make this as simple as we can, the gift of tongues is basically the gift of prophecy without a language barrier. It was a way to communicate God's word to anyone listening and to do so very quickly. The first occurrence of the gift of tongues in Acts chapter 2 was highlighted by a gospel sermon by Peter. That's what was important. A call to salvation in Christ. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 14, 1-5 that the gift of tongues was never, ever, 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 ever intended to be somehow the central, most prestigious spiritual gift as portrayed in the charismatic movement. In fact, it was the tool that God used to spread the gospel incredibly quickly in a very short period of time. That was one of the reasons that the unbelievers of the world, as recorded in Acts 17, 6, accused the apostles of something. They said, these are the men who are turning the world upside down. Because when there's no language barrier, the gospel was spreading like a fire across a prairie. Never before in the history of the world had information about anything been spread so quickly. Now, I read to you earlier this morning from Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, because the gift of tongues was the reversal of the curse of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel, Genesis 11, and the instant creation of many different human language, that was meant by God to separate rebellious peoples, and it did. The Tower of Babel uh, remained unfinished, and they just wandered off. Because they couldn't understand each other. The gift of tongues overcame that curse to bring people back together under the banner of the cross of Christ. It was a reversal of that. And it was a wonderful, wonderful gift. If the gift of tongues was still here, we wouldn't have needed Alex up here a minute ago, right? That's the biblical definition. The continuationist definition takes a little more time. It's complex. The continuation definition of the gift of tongues is that tongues is primarily a devotional prayer language for personal use. It's a devotional prayer language for personal use and it's available to all Christians. It's not generally considered to be an authentic foreign language, but a heavenly spiritual language. And there's, there's no need for it to be anything whatsoever in structure or form like an earthly human language. And as long as tongues are used privately, there's no need to interpret those tongues for others. They would say that Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, the speaking in tongues there did consist of unlearned foreign languages. They have to say that because it lists the 15 languages that were spoken. That that's what happened then. But by the time you get to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, that definition of tongues has now broadened out to include spiritual languages and angelic languages even. 
not just human languages, that the tongues of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are categorically different from the tongues of Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 10, and Acts chapter 19, that they're different. It's, it's a completely different phenomenon. They would also say that the gift of tongues is a form of prayer. It can be stopped and started at will. It isn't necessary for the one speaking in tongues to understand what he's saying. It's also considered a form of spiritual warfare, that if you're really in trouble, spiritually speaking, you ought to be speaking in tongues. And that it's a devotional communication with God that is for all Christians. Now, I mentioned this a second ago, but the big issue here is that the position of two different types of tongues, the Acts 2, Acts 10, Acts 19 type, and the 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 type, that position had to be created in order to make charismatic theology work. The belief that the tongues of 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 are, are, are somewhat of an expansion of the tongues of Acts chapter 2. Can you support that these are two different types? Well, let's make a quick comparison. In Acts 2, 10 and 19, the gift of tongues is attributed to the Holy Spirit. Correct. 1 Corinthians 12 Verses 1, 7, and 11, the gift of tongues is attributed to the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, tongues is the supernatural ability to speak in a foreign human language. 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, tongues are a language to be interpreted. And Paul associated tongues with foreign languages in 1 Corinthians 14, 10, and 11. In Acts chapter 2, Acts 10, Acts 19, the primary word for tongues, will simplify it in English, to glossa. That indicates a known human language. Now, two times the word from which we get dialect is used, but that doesn't change the fact that it's a known human language. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, glossa is used 16 times. One other word is used twice, but it's not a word that indicates anything other than a known human language. In Acts, the gift of tongues was a sign for unbelieving Jews to show them that the Lord's Spirit was working in Gentiles as well now. Acts 2, uh, four times, it says that. In 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22, tongues are a sign for unbelieving Jews. In the book of Acts, tongues is associated closely with prophecy, as I've already mentioned. Chapter 2, 16 through 18. Chapter 19, verse 6. In 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, closely associated with prophecy all throughout. They're always listed together. In Acts chapter 2, some of the unbelieving Jews listening accused the apostles of being drunk. In 1 Corinthians 14, 23, Paul says that if someone is speaking in tongues and they're not interpreted, they'll be accused of being insane, basically the same as being drunk. So the gift of tongues described in Acts, if you just go down the columns of comparison, are exactly the same as the gift of tongues described in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Let me just add a couple more thoughts to kind of poke a hole in the, in the continuation position that tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 are different than Acts. First one is that Luke, the author of Acts, was Paul's ministry companion, and he finished the book of Acts, listen carefully, after 1 Corinthians was written. And so it's almost certain that Luke wouldn't have used exactly the same terminology in Acts if he believed that something completely different had taken place in the church of Corinth. One more little hole we could poke into that position. 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 11, and 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 31 makes it abundantly clear 
Very obvious that even in the time of the apostles, not everyone was given the gift of tongues. That can never be said from Scripture. Now, we're still under the heading. I told you it was complex, and I'll tell you why in a moment. We're still under the heading of the charismatic definition of tongues. The charismatic view now takes 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 as describing, you ready for this, three different kinds of tongues that don't even include the type in Acts 2. And it just starts to be mind-boggling at this point. The first type, 1 Corinthians 12, is very clear, very clear that not everyone is given the gift of tongues. And so charismatic theology characterizes this as one type of tongues that's not given to everyone. The second type, we'll skip to 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5, is taking as proof that there is a type of tongues that everybody's supposed to have. Since Paul says, now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. And you go, uh-oh, that sounds kind of bad for our position. But his point in context is not to emphasize the gift of tongues. His point is to emphasize the over, uh, overly overlooked gift of prophecy. In other words, what he's saying is, yeah, it would be great if everybody spoke in tongues, but it would be even better if prophecy, because prophecy is better. That was his point. And someone might say, but you can't run away from the fact that Paul says, now I want you all to speak in tongues. Let me ask you this. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7. What did he mean when he said, I wish everybody was single and not married? Same exact structure. What is he saying? Boy, that would be great if you were all like me. Is he actually saying that all married people should become single? No. When he says, all of you should speak in tongues, he's telling a joke. You ever tell a joke and the person doesn't get it? They're not getting it. The joke is, if everyone spoke in tongues, even then prophecy is better. Why? Because everybody can understand it. That's why it's better. But then there's a third type. 1 Corinthians 13, the tongues of angels. There have been whole books written on how to speak in the tongues of angels. I don't know where they get this. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong. Once again, have you ever tried to tell a joke to somebody who takes everything literally and they just try to figure it out and you go, I I can't ever, ever tell you a joke again because you don't get these things. Paul's telling a joke. His point is not that there's some sort of angelic prayer language available to Christians. His point to the Corinthians who were proud of their manifestations of spiritual gifts but they were lacking in love. His point is this. Even if I spoke every human language possible, even if I spoke some sort of angel talk, but I'm not loving, then I'm just a big gong. It's ridiculous. He's telling a joke. It's not a language that we're meant to go after. By the way, every single time an angel speaks to humans in the Bible, he speaks in a human language. Now, at this point, you may be thinking, why did I come to church today? This is so confusing. You're correct, it is confusing. And just to add to the confusion, there's about as many variations on the teaching of the gift of tongues as there are churches spreading it. It it is, it is phenomenal, the exponential number of variations there are on this. There was one gift of tongues, no variations. It consisted of being able to proclaim the truth of the gospel and the truth of Christ in a language you had never learned. Ideally, the use of tongues also involved translation for the message of the whole church to the message to the whole church. Not all believers had this gift. 
They were never commanded to seek the gift, nor was it ever considered the main feature of the church. It was never, anywhere ever in the New Testament, presented as a normal part of daily life. It was a unique, unusual, small part, occasionally, of a gathering of God's people. And that was it. Now, those are the very basic foundations. I'd like to consider the timing now. The timing, this is the big question. Is it still in operation today as defined in Scripture alone? And now we can finally get to our text here, Hebrews 2. Follow along with me. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Now, the context here is everything. Verse 1 is the context. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. What's the context? The writer is encouraging faithfulness to the gospel. You don't drift away. You don't defect. So follow the argument here, understanding that that's the context. First of all, the gospel, he says, was attested to us. That is the second generation of Christians. That's very important. It was attested to us, the second generation of Christians, by the first generation, primarily the apostles, and it was the first generation performing these signs and wonders, which were for what purpose? To confirm the message of the gospel. That if I'm telling you I have a message from God and it's true, that's one thing. If I'm telling you I have a message from God and it's true and I'm raising the dead, that's something else, isn't it? So the gospel was attested to us, the second generation of Christians, by the first generation. Second, the, uh, the grammatical construction here in aorist indicative, it was attested to us, clearly speaks of something that happened once before, but is not happening now. There's no other way to read that. It loses all of its sense if you try to read into it that those gifts continue now. It would make no grammatical sense. A different type of verb would have been used. And so third, then the context is encouraging faithfulness to the gospel to not defect from the church. If the gifts are still continuing, I got to tell you, the author of Hebrews blew a huge opportunity here. He blew it if the gifts are still going because here's what he's saying. He's saying that the gifts given at one time attested to and bore witness to the authenticity of the message. If the gifts are continuing, how much better would it have been if he had said, just like they're happening right now, that you can go to church on any Sunday and see these miracles right now. But he didn't say that. The silence is deafening when it comes to the fact that he presents the sign gifts as being a thing of the past. Turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 2, going backwards in our New Testament. Ephesians 2, we're going to see a logical conclusion that connects the apostles with the prophets and then connects to the gift of tongues. Ephesians 2. Very easily understood here, actually. Ephesians 2, verse 19. 
Ephesians 2, verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We're members of the church. That's the household of God. Verse 20, Built, past tense, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what is this saying here? First of all, it establishes that the apostles were no longer for the church today. The apostles had three qualifications to be an apostle. There are no more apostles today unless somebody really has taken their vitamins and lived for about 2,000 years. Three qualifications. They're personally chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ. They were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Now the apostle Paul was an eyewitness on the road to Damascus. And they're given the ability to confirm their message miraculously by doing miracles. The Apostle Paul even said, I I thank the Lord that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Of course he does. He's an apostle. But this also establishes a foundational connection between the apostles and the local church prophets, those who received revelation from God in the first generation. And just to be clear, grammatically, these are two different groups This is not the apostles who are also the prophets. Paul never calls the apostles prophets in any of the 13 letters that he writes. Now, we're following a logical argument here. Remember, we said earlier that the gift of tongues is, in essence, the gift of prophecy coupled with the ability to speak in the language that you haven't learned, an unlearned language. So here's the logic. If there are no more prophets, there are no more prophecies. And if there are no more prophecies, then there are no more tongues. There can't be, because the connection is too clear. Turn backwards again to 1 Corinthians 13. We'll continue a little tour here. 1 Corinthians 13. Now, to be very clear, we're going to briefly look at what some call the real crux of this issue, kind of the center point. And I don't want to let all the air out of your sails, but I did say earlier that there's no one verse that singularly proves the cessationist position. But 1 Corinthians 13, 8 is sometimes seen as that one verse. It doesn't do that, but it does help us. So it's worth looking at. It does give us a lot of support. 1 Corinthians 13, most famously called the love chapter, but we're going to start in verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Now again, not to let the air out of anybody's sails here, this is not a text that provides all the information about when the gift of tongues ceases. What it does do is provide a spiritual truth. And that spiritual truth is that the eternal always surpasses what is temporary. The eternal is always more important than the temporal. In contrast to love, which will never fail, prophecy, tongues, and miraculous knowledge, those things will stop. They'll cease. Paul is singling out these three because these are the things that 
that the Corinthians were misusing for selfish and self-aggrandizing reasons to, to say, well, I'm more spiritual than you because I speak in tongues more than you. Well, I gave this prophecy. Well, I gave you this knowledge. And it became this competition. It's just the opposite as it should have been. Well, just a little side note here. I don't have time to go into this in detail, but it's interesting to note that Paul uses two different words when speaking about the end of these things, for the end of prophecy and knowledge, he uses a word that says they'll be done away with, that somebody throws them away, so to speak. For the end of tongues, he uses a word that just means it'll quit all by itself. Interesting that he puts that by itself in its own category. Now, the question of when tongues will cease by itself isn't answered here, but we do know that there is a marker, there is a, an indicator of when tongues will cease It is when the perfect comes. When the perfect comes. Now, hang on to your seats for just a minute. I got to take you on a little bit of a ride here. The key is in verse 9. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. Verse 11 is an illustration. When When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. It speaks of partial knowledge, partial prophecy. Now, this is the part you need to hang on for. In verse 8, prophecies and knowledge are both feminine nouns. You don't have to remember that. But in verse 9, the partial, referring to the fact that we know in part, we prophesy in part, these are both neuter. It, It means they don't go together. Now, don't worry about that except to know this. The partial in verse 9, that we know in part and prophesy in part, cannot grammatically be referring to the spiritual gifts of prophecy and knowledge in verse 8. It's not the same thing. Instead, the partial in verse 9 doesn't refer to the gifts. It refers to the results of those gifts, the words and the understanding and the actual knowledge that comes from those gifts. Now, why is that important? Because you can't have a partial gift of prophecy or a partial gift of knowledge or certainly a partial gift of tongues that I understood half of what you said. But you can have incomplete and partial knowledge that comes from those things. That the early church got some information, but they didn't get all of it. But this incomplete revelation will be done away with when? When the perfect comes. When the perfect comes, revelation will be complete. Knowledge will be total. It's not that when the perfect comes, the partial gifts will be done away with, but the incompleteness, the murkiness that characterizes those gifts will be finished. That when the perfect comes, then partial knowledge, incomplete knowledge is done. Now, what's the million dollar question? Obviously, what is the perfect? What is the perfect that will do away with the incomplete nature of the content of revelation that's given by prophecy and by knowledge and by tongues? What is that perfect? Well, there's a few options. We'll run through them quickly. Option number one, love itself is the perfect. That when the fullness of love comes, then those things will be done away with. But that means then that the ceasing of the incomplete nature of revelation depends on every local church. Now, here's the irony in that. Hang on to this. Ironically, that would mean that churches without the miraculous gifts have arrived at love and the churches with the miraculous gifts haven't made it there yet. So we probably wouldn't say that and they wouldn't want us to say that. Option two, the completed Bible is the perfect. That the partial revelation is done away with 
when the full revelation of scriptures has been completed. This is my second favorite view. Now, we would say this. The completed Bible does do something for us. It renders prophecy obsolete, doesn't it? The Bible is very complete. It begins at the beginning and ends at the end. and has everything in between that we need. But there are some problems with that view. Remember, in Hebrews chapter 2, the author indicated that by that point, the miraculous gifts seemed to be a thing of the past. But the New Testament wasn't complete yet. So you can't make that a one-for-one analysis there. There's a third option. That the maturing church, the mature church rather, is the perfect. That when the church arrives at maturity, that those things will be done away with. I don't know how we quantify what the mature church is. And every time we think the church is matured, then churches all over the world do something stupid. And we go, well, haven't matured yet. So you can't really determine the exact date of the maturing of the church. Now, there are actually some good reasons for that view because it's strongly linked to the completion of the Bible and to the death of the apostles. But I think those are better logical reasons. There's a fourth option. That the perfect is the Christian's entrance into heaven. We would all agree that's perfect. This is actually a very strong position. Because it takes into account verse 12. For now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul associates seeing the Lord face to face with the perfect. There's a fifth option. The return of Christ to earth is the perfect. Again, we would say that's a pretty good option. It's a strong position. But verse 9 says, We know in part and we prophesy in part that won't happen yet, or the completion won't happen yet at the return of Christ because there will still be unbelievers on the earth. Option six, that the perfect is the final state after the millennium. We've reached the end of time, so option six is it. The final state. This is in line with the neuter gender of the Greek, the perfect. That's a reference to a general state, events, a state of events, not something personal like the return of Christ. And it also allows for, as I just mentioned, the partial obscurity of revelation to continue on into the millennium because there will be unbelievers in the millennial kingdom And so that view holds water from that vantage point. But the final state, option six, actually encompasses options four, five, and six altogether. Why? Because for us right now in the church age, option four, your entrance into heaven, that is the perfect. The return of Christ, that is the perfect. And the final state, that is the perfect. So how do we evaluate these? And as your head is spinning here, let me try to unspin it just a little bit. Option one, love itself is the perfect. Nice idea, doesn't hold any water. Options two and three, the completion of the Bible and the maturing of the church. Again, that's attractive because it's related to the end of the sign gifts. We have no need of revelation because it's complete. But even though we have a completed Bible, we can't say that our knowledge is perfect. We can't say that we're fully known even as as we, we know as we're fully known if If we had complete and perfect knowledge, we wouldn't be here right now, right? For Paul, it's very clear in verse 12 that he is saying that partial understanding and partial knowledge is done away with at his death, at the full revealing of the glory of God. Now, 
My position is that some combination of those last four that all have to do with your entrance into heaven, the return of Christ, the final state, those best fit the context. So after all of that, what does that have to do with the timing of the end of the gift of tongues? Not much. Because that's not the point of the passage. My point to show you all this is that you do not use 1 Corinthians 13.8 to prove either the gifts have ceased or that they keep going. Because that's not the point. The point is Paul looking ahead to a time when he goes to heaven and all of this subpar knowledge will be perfected. If you've ever read your Bible and said, I have no idea what that means, then you too look forward to that completion of knowledge. In fact, we get our best admonition here at the very end of verse 13, chapter 13, in verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. That's how to walk with the Lord now. We're going to keep going backwards. Now we will hit the timing issue pretty hard. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We have to consider a half dozen verses or so in this text because it's often used as a proof text on the side of continuationism. Because verse 7 seems to imply that the sign gifts endure all the way to the second coming of Christ. And so we have to answer this. 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Uh Uh-oh as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is taken as all the gifts go on until Christ returns. Verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Does that mean that all the sign gifts continue? No, not at all. You can't take this as that proof. Several reasons. First of all, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 The word gift appears continually with another gift, another word, spiritual. This doesn't say it's a spiritual gift. It's a broad word. Paul also uses the same word to speak of the gift of singleness in chapter 7, verse 7, and the gift of salvation in Romans 5. So it's a general word. In these six verses that I just read, God the Father is mentioned three times, God the Son is mentioned five times, God the Spirit not once. So it's very unlikely this is speaking of spiritual gifts. It's too general to be taken definitely as spiritual gifts. It doesn't prove anything except that Paul is confident in the Lord's help to the end of his life. As a matter of fact, if anything, in the context of verse 8, who will sustain you to the end, God preserving your salvation, it's most likely that gift simply is related to the gift of helping you persevere to the end of your life that everything you need to persevere in your faith will be given to you. Now, I kind of saved the juiciest part for for near the end. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. This is a major passage. We have to deal with it for a bit. The modern Pentecostal and charismatic movement was birthed largely on this passage. Acts chapter 2. While I would love to read you the whole chapter, I don't have time for that. Verse 1 is the day of Pentecost. They were all together in one place. 
Suddenly from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind that fills the entire house where they are seated. Divided tongues of fire appeared to them, rested on each one of them, little tongues of fire. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now, just a little side note. There's a lot of pronouns in there. They, them, who is this speaking of? There's a rule in grammar that you always go back to the antecedent, which identifies them. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. Who is they? Take out that big uh, black number two for chapter two and look backwards. Verse 26 of chapter one, they cast lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Who is the them and the they at the beginning of chapter two? It's the apostles. Verse five of chapter two, they're dwelling in Jerusalem There were Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is uh, the time of Pentecost. So people were visiting from all over the place, coming back to Jerusalem. They heard this sound of a rushing wind, and they're bewildered because they heard them, who's that? The apostles speaking in their own language. They were amazed, verse 7, and astonished and said, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? That's another proof this is only speaking to the apostles. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then from verses 9 through 11, 15 different human languages are listed that were recognized. Verse 12, And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. They're drunk. And here we go. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days... I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So in Peter's sermon, he is citing here the book of Joel, chapter 2, as being fulfilled at some level, the pouring out of the Spirit of God. What is actually happening here? Some feel that Peter's merely using what happened at Pentecost as an illustration of what will happen at some point in the future. We'll come back to that. Others feel it represents a dual or a partial fulfillment with more and fuller fulfillment still to come. There's merits to that view as well. And still others feel this is a total fulfillment and that Joel's prophecies are all fulfilled in the church age. That the signs given in verses 19 and 20 are considered either speaking of the death of Christ or the destruction of Jerusalem or some other allegorized version. So the question for us, though, is Peter saying that the miraculous gifts continue into the church age? Is Joel chapter 2 being fulfilled? That is the prevailing view of the continuationist. Well, you can immediately see the problem with this view. There are too many things in the Joel 2 prophecy that haven't happened yet. The Spirit of God being poured out on all flesh, all people, verse 17, that hasn't happened. The terrifying events of verses 19 and 20 
which are said to occur just before the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, the judge of the earth. Those haven't happened. So how do we understand this reference to Joel 2? I think there's several things that will be helpful to us, several factors. First of all, remember that the book of Acts is a transitional time at the very beginning of the church's history. All kinds of things happen in Acts that haven't happened since. Tongues of fire floating over people's heads. Uh, How about apostles declaring that someone should drop dead, and they do? That hasn't happened. The second factor, you can't just decide to appropriate, to steal an Old Testament prophecy that's not about the church and make it about the church. So we couldn't say that. What is Peter doing here? He's explaining, using the book of Joel, that what they're seeing in this partial A partial pouring out of the Spirit. Why is it partial? Because it's only to a few. And then ultimately it will be to a few thousand when Peter finishes his sermon. But that's still, relatively speaking, a few. This partial pouring out of the Spirit is showing in small part that God is continuing his redemptive plan toward the actual future point indicated in Joel and that this is a small picture of what the pouring out of the Spirit of God in the future will be like. And so the day of Pentecost cannot be a fulfillment, at least not a total fulfillment of Joel 2. It's a picture or it's an illustration of what's happening on Pentecost is a glimpse of the future. Now this is where you're going to get pushback and you'll hear this. Oh, but what about the fact that Joel 2 talks about the latter rain of the Holy Spirit on the earth? The latter rain movement is still huge in the world today by the hundreds of millions of people. Surely what we see happening in the 20th century now is the the latter reign of the Spirit of God. Well, when all else fails, look at the actual text. So turn with me to Joel chapter 2. Let's see what's actually happening in Joel 2. I'm trying to do a month's worth of sermons in one day, so we're going to fly through this for the sake of time. What's actually happening? Joel 2 verse 1. Sound an alarm. Something bad is coming. Verse 2, you have after the sounding of the alarm in verse 1, a day of darkness and gloom. And it says that there's something that's going to happen that has never happened before and will never happen after. What day of, is this speaking of? Verse 11, the great and awesome day of the Lord. That is the return of God to earth to, to, to judge. That's the day of the Lord. Verse 3, fire. Verses 4 and 5, massive war. Verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, a coordinated attack on Jerusalem. Remember, in verse 1, the alarm is sounding in Zion. That's Jerusalem. This is an actual alarm. This is actual danger. This isn't something metaphorical. Verses 10 and 11, the return of God to earth to defend his people. See also Zechariah 14 when Jesus arrives. Verses 12 and 13, A call to Israel to repent. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. To come to Christ by faith so that when he returns, they can be part of the kingdom. Verses 18 through 21. This is what the new kingdom will be like for repentant Israel. Verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. 
The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Verses 28 and 29, this is what's referenced by Peter, is an unprecedented pouring out of the Spirit of God on Israel. That walking in the Spirit will be so normal that even the dreams you dream will be spiritual in nature. Wouldn't you love to go to sleep every night and have the Lord speaking to you all night long? That'll be normal. That'll be normal. But when will that happen? Verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on on all flesh. After what? After the return of Christ. Okay, but what about the latter reign of the spirit? Yes, there will be a tremendous, unprecedented pouring out of the spirit of God. But is that what the hundreds of millions strong, charismatic latter reign movement accurately represents. Is that what's happening now? Joel chapter 2, while it has lots of judgment in it, is actually a very happy chapter in many ways. A large portion of Joel 2 is devoted to what life in Israel will be like after Christ returns. And what a beautiful picture it is. I already read verse 19. Grain, wine, and oil, agricultural abundance. Verse 20, no more will Israel be considered as low. Do you realize that Christ is going to end anti-Semitism forever? Verse 22, look at this picture of beauty. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Verse 24, the threshing floor shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. No more will the discipline of the Lord be upon them when he won't bless their land. And this beautiful land with orchards and fields and vineyards and grain and green pastures filled with healthy livestock. What does all of that take? Verse 23. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early, here it is, and the latter rain, as before. Ask any Israelite in the Old Testament, what is the early rain and the latter rain? He would say, where have you been? And he would explain something like this. Okay, I'm going to assume that you've time traveled from 2022 and you don't know anything. You don't know squat about the way the world works, so I'm going to explain it to you. Everyone knows that the good rain of the autumn is when we harvest the olives. And when the rains slow down, we plant grain twice during the early planting and then the late planting. That's the early rain. Is the autumn rain. And then during the good rain of the spring, we clear weeds from the fields because it's nice and wet and we can get the weeds out. As the wheat and the barley grow and the vineyards get a really good watering, Then we harvest the barley. Then after that, the wheat, while it's dry, we tend to the vineyards. We tend to the orchards all through the summer. At the end of the summer, we harvest all the fruit just before the autumn rains again. Those spring rains, we call them the latter rain. 
Jeremiah 24. Haven't you heard that? God who gives rain in its season, the autumn rain and the spring rain. So what is the latter rain? It's water. It's water. There's no evidence from Scripture anywhere that somehow near the end of the church age, believers will have this resurgence in miracle working power. That is never indicated. So what do we conclude about the timing of the gift of tongues? The evidence for the continuation of the gift in the church exactly as it was in the early church is nil. There's no evidence for it. While the evidence that the gift of tongues has ceased is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Now, that doesn't mean we think it's negative or bad. We, we, the gift of tongues was given by God. In fact, I want to do our last two parts here, and we'll do them much more quickly. I want to do the purposes. If the church isn't exercising the miraculous gifts today in like manner to the early church, why do we have them in the first place? I can give you three quick reasons. The first one, authentication. Authentication. The message authenticated God's message and God's messengers. After Jesus turned water into wine at the Cana wedding, John 2.11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. That, it was a sign. Same thing for Peter. He says this, that Jesus attested by God with mighty works and wonders. The apostles were attested by mighty works and wonders, Acts 2.43. And in fact, normal, everyday Gentile converts were showing that the message was true. They were speaking in tongues. Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 19. This was a sign to the Jews that salvation is offered to the world. And so there was authentication. We don't need to authenticate the message today, do we? The gospel is self-authenticating because miracles happen around the gospel all the time. We have seen miracles in this church over and over and over again. Did you know that? What is the miracle we've seen over and over again? That sinners who used to hate God are turned into worshipers. That's a miracle. This is a miracle that's so profound. It's the only miracle in all of Scripture. The first Peter 1 says angels long to understand it. There's a second purpose. Authentication and then revelation. Revelation. Jesus promised that more revelation beyond the Old Testament was coming. He promised a coming New Testament. He specifically promised this to the apostles in John 14, 26, and in John 16, 13. In fact, the the apostles recognized their own inspired writings as being part of Scripture. You see this in 2 Peter chapter 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians 2, 13. The apostle Paul is thankful to the Lord for the Thessalonians, because he said, when you received the word of God, you accepted it not as the word of men, but what it really was, the word of God, meaning what they spoke was God's, were God's words. Is there any need for prophetic revelation in the church now? There's no need whatsoever. Jude, verse 3, speaks of our faith. All that we know and believe has been delivered once for all. It's done. Revelation 22, verse 18, warns, that if anyone adds to the books of this, the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. It's done. Authentication, revelation, there's one third purpose, edification. Edification is for the improvement and the encouragement, the spiritual uplifting of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. 
Now, we could say that authentication is done, revelation is done. Wait a minute. Edification, is that still happening? It is. That one's actually still happening. Are we being edified and built up by the miracles and signs of the early church? We are. You want to know why? Every time you pick up your Bible and every time you turn to the New Testament, you're reading the words penned by men who healed the sick and raised the dead by the power of the Spirit. Doesn't that give you cause to trust what you read? It does for me. One little last note here. The entire practice of today's charismatic movement is exactly at odds with the purposes of the sign gifts, particularly the edification, because continuationists argue that the spiritual gifts are self-edifying, that they're for me. Spiritual gifts were never for me. They were always for others. And let's finish our time just looking at the dangers. I really touched on all of them, so I'll go quickly dangers of the continuationist movement the reason we don't reasons we don't subscribe to this first danger it opens the door to a new gnosticism it opens the door to a new gnosticism gnosticism is the belief that some have higher knowledge of god than others are capable of having it's a terrible belief and in this sense continuationists claim to have a greater understanding and experience of the holy spirit i've lost track of how many people i have counseled with who feel terrible about themselves because they don't speak in tongues that somehow they, they, they're honest enough to not fake it like most people do. And they feel terrible. They feel like they're a second-class citizen. Like my former pastor when I was a young man used to always say, there's no such thing as varsity Christians and junior varsity Christians. You're all in Christ. And so speaking in tongues becomes a test of spirituality. And if you're a 10-year-old and being told that real Christians speak in tongues, what are you going to do? It opens the door to manipulation and pressure. Another danger, it eclipses the gospel of Christ. It eclipses the gospel of Christ. The reality is is that in every case, every single local church that believes in speaking in tongues, at some level, they take away from the gospel. At some level, they do. Or worse, the gospel gets mixed in with speaking in tongues, which makes it now a false gospel. Here's another danger, and this is the one that should send chills up their spine. Continuationists attribute to the Holy Spirit something the Holy Spirit is not doing. They attribute to the Holy Spirit something that God is not doing. The practices of speaking in tongues and prophecy and healing, they bear no resemblance whatsoever to the common practice in the New Testament. And for example, it's a regular practice in charismatic churches to try to teach people to speak in tongues. You go to a class on how to speak in tongues. That's not true of the actual gift. It was instant. It was complete. Acts chapter 2 doesn't have a little asterisk that says, after six weeks of a class on how to speak in tongues, they came back and continued where they left off. Here's another danger. Continuationists have highlighted the Holy Spirit in a way that the Holy Spirit never intended. The Holy Spirit regenerates and points the way to Christ. That is what he proclaims his role to be. There's another danger. Speaking in so-called tongues is associated with a dissatisfaction with the Bible. It's associated with a dissatisfaction of the Bible. It's also highly associated with amateur and self-centered hermeneutics of the worst kind. They make the book of Acts and the whole Bible and the gifts of the Spirit all about me. And how about this one? Let's just stay really logical here. Because speaking in tongues has become a test of salvation in many circles, how about this? 
Speaking in tongues opens the door to believing that anyone can be saved regardless of what they believe. Why, was it, why would they open that door? Because there are Roman Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and pagan idol worshipers who speak in tongues. And if that becomes a test of salvation, if you're going to stay consistent, then they must also be saved. There's another danger. It shifts the purpose of the church from proclaiming Christ to seeking emotional experience. We can generate that. There's a child out there having an emotional experience. Can you imagine if we were all doing that right now? And this is the one that I think it hurts us. It hurts the church as a whole and it hurts us individually. It creates an arrogant attitude in a whole church. I get this question numerous times, probably at least twice a year, either from somebody visiting or sending an email, and they ask me this question, is your church spirit-filled? Meaning, do you speak in tongues? So I have to give a big, long answer. Well, if you're talking about the filling of the Spirit according to Ephesians 5, which also correlates to, to Colossians 3, then yes, we are Spirit-filled because we are doing all the things that Spirit-filled people do. If you're talking about speaking in tongues, yes, we are Spirit-filled because we don't do that. I have a concern for two groups. The first group is for those who think they have the key to super-spirituality because they think they speak in tongues. You can't really talk to that person because they're more interested in what they think they know than what the Bible actually says. It's hard to have a logical conversation with them because what they're doing is by nature illogical. But my concern is for the other group, those who may feel burdened by feeling unspiritual or unworthy because they don't speak in tongues. You wanna know why this became such a huge issue, especially in the 60s and 70s? Because good and godly people got sick and tired of mainline denominations that were so dead as a doornail that there was no correlation to any sort of reality of knowing Christ and knowing the God of the universe. And then they look across the street at this charismatic church where everybody's wearing shorts, t-shirts, and sandals, and they're doing crazy stuff, but man, they seem to love Jesus. And there was such an attraction and you just saw this mass exodus from the Presbyterian churches and the United Methodist churches and all these mainline denominations to go across the street to the churches with the weird names like Jesus Chapel and we're all about Jesus Church and things like that. And it just, so I sort of understand that. So where do you find that glorious emotion if that's what you are looking for? You find it here. My Bible says the word of God. And you know what I love about it? It's in English. And I don't need somebody to translate it for me when I have this Bible. Don't feel unspiritual. Don't feel unworthy. You read your Bible. For now, we have a big Bible with the eternal thoughts of God. We have incomplete knowledge, we have incomplete prophecy, but we have a big, big Bible. So my prayer for you is that you're not praying, Lord, give me a glorious, instant, emotional experience. My prayer for you is the same prayer that the psalmist gave in Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. So I'll tell you what. You start speaking in tongues as soon as you know the word of God perfectly and I'll agree with you on that. Won't happen because our knowledge is partial, right? 
if you are one of those that has been put down and beaten down and wondering if you're not spiritual because you're speaking, not speaking in tongues, don't suffer silently. Find a member of Grace Bible Church. Talk to me. Talk to one of our elders. We would love to show you that you are in Christ. That Ephesians 1 says that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have everything that Christ has given to every believer. You have eternal life. You have the word of God. You have the people of God. You have a future as a leader in the kingdom of God. It's all yours. There's nothing missing. One little thing, you have to die. But other than that, nothing's missing. Never ever think that if you are in Christ, you are somehow second He is the firstborn among many brothers, and we are all equal. All equal. Let's pray. Our Father, at the Tower of Babel, you judged the world by confusing our languages, and on the day of Pentecost, you gave mercy by reversing that to a degree. We long for a day when we're all together, when people of every tribe and people and tongue and nation are together, in heaven. Until that time, Lord, we thank you for the completed Bible, the revelation that begins at the beginning and ends at the end. I pray, Lord, for a man or a woman among us who has been fooled into thinking that because they have been among those who have faked emotional ecstatic experiences that they know Christ. Instead, Lord, let the Spirit of God regenerate them and show them their need for the cross for forgiveness. I pray for a man or a woman among us who has struggled with feeling like a spiritually second-class citizen. Help them to remember that every promise of God is theirs. That they are citizens of heaven, citizens of the kingdom of the God of the universe. And I pray for those who are even now recalcitrant and stubborn in their pride and hanging on to their faked gift of tongues. Help them to repent, Lord, and to seek after you and your word and to repent of that wicked practice which attributes to the Holy Spirit something he doesn't do. We pray as a church, Lord, to be godly, to be loving, to be kind. Faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is love. Let that be what guides and directs us. We pray and thank you in Christ's name. Amen.